Hello and welcome back to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. This episode, the boys are back in town as Jake and Nathan are here to fill you in on London's latest venues with another round of venue talk. It's it's not actually officially open at time of uh, time of recording. God, new venue. Oh, yeah, really new, really hot off the press. Um, it's called the Flower Pot. Ben and Felicity from the Event Lab team are joined by Kevin Jackson, the director of Experience is the Marketing, to chat about the idea there is no such thing as sales. Every brand will have a database of one. And everyone thought, what is he talking about? But first, venues on the ropes. Venues are being sued by a production company after refusing to host Dwarfinator, a dwarf wrestling show. Yes, Minister. Does the events industry need more direct representation in government? And a trip down memory lane. Unique Venues of London celebrates its 25th birthday. All that and more to come in the News Digest. It's a bumper panel this week as Sam and Ed are joined by Richard Groves, the Group Business Director for Smart Group. And new on the panel, Amanda Head, Account Director at the event management company, Mellon. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Great to have a packed house here in the, the pod today. We've got Sam back. Evening all. Good to see you, Sam. We've got Richard Groves back. Good evening. And we've got a pod debut from Amanda from Mellon. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Ed. Great to have you with us. Guys, we have quite a packed show today, plenty to talk about, and one I think that everyone here picked up on. Uh, I think probably because it was, it was not only BBC covered it, but actually I think I'm right in saying it was on the front page of the BBC News website for a while. And it's the show Dwarfinators. So this is the organisers of a, of a dwarf wrestling show that takes place across the UK, have said that their firm is taking legal action against the venues used to host this event and has cancelled their events. And this is in the wake of criticism from uh, the RGA, Restricted Growth Association, who have compared the event to a Victorian freak show. The production company, Centre Stage Entertainment, is taking action against the venues for cancelling the event and also against the RGA, the Restricted Growth Association, its itself for what it in turn calls discrimination but in any case cancelled at certain events as by the wishes of the of the venue where do you guys stand on this should venues be getting sued for deciding the events that happen in their space well speaking from a venue perspective i find this quite frustrating um so taking out of out of context the actual event this is an association that's bearing down on the venues and i feel that quite often in the national media venues do get a hard time i think the last time we were all together, Richard, we were having a conversation, similar story, venue bashing again. Mm-hmm. So the venues had pressure put on them. Um, they're venues that are probably challenged who don't have big PR or media agencies supporting them. Maybe that's what they need. But I feel that, you know, this is an event that is run professionally. The people who are the professionals, who are the wrestlers, want to do it, are running and having careers in this and very, very successful careers. And I feel that the venues, yet again, have got a hard time in the national press. Mm, I agree. I think it is, it's a struggle because people do overlay a responsibility on the venues. It's not necessarily all down to them. Um, lots of background questions like, were the artists coerced to being there? Who, who was paying? Who was coming? Was it very popular? Was it something that was very seedy and under, underplayed? Or was it actually something that was filling a gap in the market that people wanted to go and see and then and the, the people taking part were making very good money out of it and therefore they were happy to perform? On the venue side, 
yet again, here we come to the venues, are the, the moral arbiters of, of the world these days, and should we be taking events that some people might take objection to? Something that kind of keeps, seems to keep coming up, doesn't it? This question of the extent to which venues and, and, and event suppliers should be the kind of moral arbiters. We've talked about Marine Le Pen quite recently on the podcast. I mean, there's a quote from at least one of the, the wrestlers themselves who, who, who says that disappointed that it's, been, that, it's, that it's been cut from these venues and it certainly shouldn't be to look at what the RGA themselves have said exactly. It's that the event was a Victorian spectacle, harks back to freak shows, carnivals, travelling troops for people to poke fun at those with disabilities but it seems that it seems as though that's not the what, what's being said by the participants of the event themselves Amanda what's your take well i mean i yeah i think surely the first port of call for the RGA would have been to ask the participants of the show what what their thoughts were on it before pulling out the rug from underneath their carpets as it were and the poor venues that have been left you know empty pocketed and having an earful I think it's really really unfair the venues budgets are tight enough already I guess they, they now they've got got to find legal legal representation it's gonna it's gonna you know it's gonna cost venues to even I suppose defend themselves against this this action is that fair on them no not at all and I, I think it comes back just as Amanda said to the actual participants were they coerced into doing this were they um, earning um, a, a, a good wage to do it and, and did they feel comfortable in doing it or did they feel that they were involved in the Victorian circus, but they're doing it because they really just, it's the only way they can earn some money. It's a, it is a tricky one because I, you know, the RGA is, is, is clearly there to look after the good of people. So it's difficult, but from a venue perspective, you know, there are certain, and I'm sure that both of you would agree, there's certain events that you would absolutely, from a venue, a head of venue perspective, say no to. Um, and depending on the type of venue you are, definitely say no, no, no to. However, there comes a line where, as you said, you know, unique and unusual venues, independent venues, all venues need to be making money. And where is the responsibility when you're dry hiring a venue, when you're hiring that space? Once you've gone through those qualifying caveat questions, how much responsibility should that venue have? And I don't believe that they should be getting the hard time that they're having in the press. I totally agree with you. You would assume they'd done their, their kind of due diligence on it and, and they'd made the decision that, it was an event that they were happy to host? You would. It could have made some people uncomfortable. You know, we, we have um, at Battle Evolution at Christmas lots of dancing going on in the reception time and they, they do wear typical dancers' outfits, you know, lots of tight lycra and, and open neck shirts and things for the boys. And some of our clients said, can you just tone it down? Can you make sure that the, the dresses are longer and the shirts are buttoned up? It's Who's been made uncomfortable by this? Is it the client on behalf of the their clients coming who they're actually being a little bit more protective over or or is it really that people are worried these days about coming to a corporate event and seeing something that they might feel is uncomfortable to some people so i think it's going to be one that will run and run i think the legal the legal battle will will, will be escalated i imagine and be one that i imagine venues will be paying a close eye to yeah we'll keep watching that space as it develops i've got with me three experienced events professionals and I wanted to pick up on... So actually, this this was something in conference news, and it was actually uh, Unique Venues of London, 25 years old a couple of weeks ago. And there was a, a piece in conference news about what has changed in the events industry in 25 years. I imagine quite a lot. Richard, you've been... You've, it has. I've, I've started before UVL was even thought of. When you were a small boy, When I was a Richard. small boy, almost unable to serve alcoholic drinks, I was so young. <laughs> Um, it has changed extraordinarily. It, there are some things that are the same. It's, it's a matter of service, food, 
great beverage and selling an event that's appropriate to the people that are coming. And that, that is timeless and will always happen. The main thing that has happened in the last 25 years when UVL's been around is the commerciality of selling venues. When I started at the Natural History Museum, I was one of the very first caterers on the list. Um, there's a lovely couple of old boys called Reg and Mike who used to run the events team. They used to let you in at five o'clock, go and play um, pocket football or what it was in their office and watch the TV and then come and lock up when you'd finished at 12 o'clock. That was about the, the interest they had in it. Now there are major teams of marketeers and salespeople in each of the venues. And it's just fascinating to see how some are developing quicker than others. And partly it's the UVL pressure is that some venues are very successful and others are trying to catch up and be closer to them. Um, but it's also how the venue itself perceives the events business within it. Some turn a blind eye to it and never think it really happens because it always happens when they've all gone home. So as long as it looks clean and tidy and hasn't got sticky floors and smells of beer the next day, they're quite happy. Um, and others, it is a very important line of revenue these days now that the um, grants from the government have all been slashed in most of the museums and art galleries. A couple of a couple of things were mentioned in the in in the in the post itself. One of them was dietary requirements. Obviously, that's a thing that's that's, that's changed changed a lot recently, making caterers more flexible. Is this something that every single events organizer and venue has to be? Has to I be? mean, definitely, they get weirder and more wonderful um, every year. I mean, last year I had a pulsophobic, so someone's that's phobic of peas and pulses. We get them saying, I don't like beetroot. Well, there isn't beetroot in the menu, so get over it. Or, you know, it, it's, these are not dietary requirements, these are dietary preferences. Yeah. You also have totally a problem different. as well when you actually go out to, from an organiser, from a catering point of view, when you go out and you ask how many vegetarians, how many gluten-free, how many celiacs you might have, and you go out and you get those questions. And then you get people coming along and looking at how fabulous, because I think venues have really improved and caterers have improved on the quality yeah, of totally dietary agree. food. Yeah. And then suddenly um, I've got a I've got a really good friend who's celiac and she, you know, she lets the organisers know. She works for a pharmaceutical yeah. company, lets them know. And quite often she'll get to uh, lunch and her food is gone. There have been venues who've been doing that for years. I worked in one big one art centre in, in the city of London. So I remember a long time ago we were talking about how we could work with our food to help our delegates become more successful. I think um, rather than asking a question now, successful venues are really working with organisers yeah. in terms of understanding the objectives of the meeting or the event mm -hmm. um, and really trying to get under the skin of what sort of experience they want their participants, delegates or guests to feel and working more in partnership. Yeah. I think that's a big change that I've certainly seen in my less than 25 years, but <laughs> more than 10. So, Amanda, you introduced to me the concept of a flexitarian, yeah. which every event's organiser's worst well, nightmare, like I understand. Yeah. It is a flexitarian is someone that um, could be vegan, could be vegetarian, could be a full meat eater. Depends on the day, depends on um, how they're feeling as to what meal they'd like to eat. So in terms of planning, forward planning, it poses issues in short. I mean, I I understand people with, with you know, if someone has dietary requirements, they have dietary requirements. To, but to me, that just sounds like you can't make a decision. Makes things tricky. But yeah. generally, I guess, it seems 25 years later, we can pretty much cater for everyone. That's yeah. a wonderful thing, right? Um, yeah, more or less. Yeah, the... Um 
I remember when I started um, in the late 80s, in the company I used to work for before I started my own, their yeah. vegetarian option, used to, they used to pack a frying pan, three eggs and a tomato, just in case anybody turned out to be a vegetarian. Now, that was 30 years ago when vegetarians were be- barely heard of. Yeah. Um, and now the vegetarian meals, people choose them over and above sometimes the, the protein meal that we're giving girls because they look so good and, and they're so tasty. And also veganism is, I mean, the number of vegans that you get these, I mean, it's it's massive in the in food you know in terms of demand people mm. are which is absolutely fine because that, that that's a proper yeah. dietary situation yeah. to be in um and i think what the flexitarians don't get and this is why clients have to be quite strong yeah and we try and get them to be stronger is that if you're turning up at the vna with 500 meals you don't turn up with six hundred just on the off chance no. that someone doesn't like what you're giving them and, and more vegetarians come out of the woodwork you always say you overcompensate but this is not a restaurant this is a one-off event what's food going to look like at events in 25 years I think it's going to continue to be more informal in a major way. People don't like sitting down for an hour and a half. A um, lot of people, a lot of millennials, don't like the idea of a three-course meal. Like I don't that. think it's just millennials. It's just we've changed as a society. Yeah, totally we are. Agree. We've. We've. You know, evolution has happened. We eat regularly. Small. We snack. Mm. We, we need graze. to do that, and we graze. So I think we're all going to have to look at how, you know, as a, as a general, as a society, I think people are going to be much more concerned around food waste. Yeah. I think we're going to have a big, big push back from caterers, from venues, to make sure that we're really concentrating on, on what we're throwing away. That was something, that was one of the other things that was mentioned in this article, actually, sustainability of food waste changed it's, a lot. Yeah, in events, it's really, really hard because you are running a one-stop show it's you don't get a second chance so you have to make sure that you've got enough of everything because you can't run out you Mm. don't want to run out so but then organizers have to communicate with their delegates by the same token i think there's gonna be a change in communication around this that actually we can't do this anymore we can't just accept the fact that we're going to put out another 50 sandwiches just in case we need to be communicating with our delegates our participants to understand why there isn't something there, what the options are, and and take food waste from a cost perspective, but from a sustainability perspective, a lot, a I lot think higher. So much new technology with regard to food waste. Companies doing brilliant things. Just very quickly, the last one was health and safety. How has that made things a lot more difficult for venues suppliers? Um, in a sensible way. I think that it's you know again you know all our all our topics have a thread through since the world of social media has come in which is what's happened in the last 25 years that nothing can happen at an event without the world and his wife knowing about it via whichever means of of social media or social media channels those participants or those organizers are using so I think in terms of health and safety I think it's a good thing I think also from some venues and some organizers I think you know, there are things that are crazy um, and are probably a little prohibitive because we're moving into an experiential world, but we have to put health and safety and in, in terms of security, it's now got to be at the forefront yeah. of an organiser's mm. uh, checklist. Just like free Wi-Fi, now health and safety security yeah. should be the same thing. It should be a natural thing and I think we'll see more of that in the future. One last thing, I'll touch on very quickly. Recently there was the APPG on events hearing, that's the all-party parliamentary group on events, took place in Westminster last week quite a few things were discussed actually and actually being covered in 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 interesting different ways by various media media in the events industry one thing I guess I wanted to pick up on is is there was talk about the creation of a minister for events you guys think that's necessary I think it'd be nice I mean it's always nice to have an expert on your side and someone that knows what you do standing and speaking for you 
never going to be guaranteed that the minister will know exactly what the um, industry is like because they move around so quickly. I think having someone representing the fact that this business, um, the industry in the UK is very, very big. It employs a lot of people and generates a lot of inbound money, which can be very important in the next two years. Um, and I think it, it needs support at government level, yes. I completely agree. Um, and I think as an industry, what we have to do is, is whilst we need to recognise that ministers do move, that's what happens, that's politics for you, is that we as an industry have to get behind a, a minister, the, you know, the lobbying side, the advocacy side, and agree and unite on those key things that we want from government in terms of support. I think that's probably where the journey needs to go now. And then um, Michael Hurst, the chairman of the BVP, has been writing to uh, government every year for the past five, six, seven years to extend that. And again, not being heard. So I, I think this unity on, on what we are and, and what those issues are will be a good thing and maybe something that's going to be discussed at the Business of Events Forum at the end of next month. We've covered a broad spectrum today. Time has flown. Be fascinating. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Ed. See, See you all next time. Bye. Bye. It's back to the higher space venue experts now, as Jake and Nathan have had their noses to the ground to bring you more of the most exciting venues opening in the UK. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Venue Talk with me, Nathan, and uh, I'm joined by Jake Lewis. Hello. Uh, venue experts. Back on the pod. Back on the pod. How's it going? Yeah, very well. Thanks, mate. How are you? Yeah, not bad, not bad. Let's just crack on, I suppose. Jake, you uh, you were at a, an event last night for a, a brand new opening. Exactly. Not, not even open yet, is it? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, the Science Gallery London um, over in London Bridge. I was, As you said, I was there last night. Um, I did take these notes after about 10 seconds, so do bear with me. They're uh, little yeah, scribbles. Yeah, I, I saw them there, an absolute mess. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, so, a little bit of history before we crack on. Um, the director, Daniel Blazer, was there last night. He's also a neuroscientist, which is amazing, um, and went through some interesting stuff, which I'd love to share with you. Great Maze Pond, which is the little cut through behind London Bridge, was a Roman canal, and they actually found a Roman barge when they were redoing the science gallery up. What, um, in, inside the venue? Inside, yeah, oh, which, wow. is, which is amazing. Before it was even there, St. Thomas's Hospital was opposite uh, where the courtyard is today. It's obviously moved now. Um, but they used to kick people out if they were uncurable. They, were, they, they couldn't be bothered. Not, <laughs> not really fancy it. And uh, Thomas Guy was having absolutely none of it and decided to open up his own place. So that's where Guy's Hospital is today. So the Science Gallery is kind of opened as a, a branch of that. There's a rolling programme, three seasons uh, each year. Um, it's completely free to go in. Uh, the first exhibition is going to be called Hooked. Yeah, all, I think all, I uh, saw that on the yeah, website. Actually, all right. about like addictions and recovery. Then the next one I think was called Spare Parts. Um, and I believe it's about prosthetics, which sounds mm -hmm. really interesting. Essentially, it looks really great. It's completely free entry, so go and have a little look around. Um, as well as all of these incredible um, gallery ex exhibitions, there are some fantastic uh, um, event spaces, which obviously uh, brand new. It's all been refurb recently. Um, so much like any of the museums uh, around London, you can hire the exhibition galleries only in the evening. Um, the, uh, the the space there can do 250 standing. Um, you know, you're obviously sort of surrounded by the exhibitions and um, whatever's whatever's going on in the gallery at the time. Um, obviously, right next to London Bridge, so amazing for you know corporate bookers after 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 work. But on top of that, they they do have some dedicated event spaces which can be hired throughout the day. Uh, you've got the lecture theatre. Um, down there, 138 
um, uh, people and there's a, there's a mm. sort of uh, br- uh, breakout space there in the atrium. They've got the, the studio set up last night for boardroom. Can do up to 38 um, or 95 in theatre. Um, and then what's really cool with that space is uh, included in the price, you get the, the balcony, which overlooks the courtyard. Um, and that is the, the last space that I want to have a quick chat about. Um, uh, can do 500 standing. You've probably walked through it. It's the, the courtyard that kind of uh, goes... If you if you come out the the, the, the sort of back entrance of, of the shard down the escalators there by Guy's Hospital, mm. there's that beautiful sort of Georgian court, courtyard area, um, and yeah, you can hire that out. Like generally, those those kind of courtyard spaces are, are fairly fairly expensive, um, and uh, they're they're kicking it off. It's only about two thousand higher, um, and obviously okay. when once you've got five hundred to get the delegates in there. Um, it's really, really, uh, you know, great value for money. It's going to be amazing for summer parties, I'm sure, next year. So, you know, get get booking those early on. <clears throat> it's all completely VAT exempt as well. So, um, yeah, really, really good space. Really impressed. Really looking forward to it. Obviously, around the corner from us um, in, in London Bridge. So, yeah, fantastic location as well. Great team. Met them all last night. And, yeah, couldn't, couldn't speak highly enough, really. Yeah, nice. No money to the taxman as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, also, I heard. I heard from. I heard this from Joe. So I'm not 100 percent sure, but um, apparently the the majority or all of the food is sourced from Borough Market, okay. which is obviously just down the road. Daniel was saying last night they're celebrating their thousandth birthday uh, pretty fairly soon, which is which what Borough Market. Are? Borough Market. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, so yeah, really using the local like, local produce as well, which is amazing. Okay, that's uh, uh, yeah, that sounds amazing. It's uh, so that was last night you went there. And yeah, that was we, we were there. Thing. We were there last night. Um, it was the first event they've they've done, and I think they've they've got a couple more uh, sort of you know more sort of tester events coming up in the next couple of weeks. The exhibition's open from the twenty first of September. Um, so yeah, head down, have a look. I think they've got they've got a little cafe as well, so you can just pop in for mm. lunch and grab a bite to eat. I suppose a big benefit as well is that you can just go and check out the exhibition and also look at the event space exactly. as well. Exactly. Yeah. Just go yeah, yeah. Well, so what what have you got for us this week, Nick? So a venue I actually wanted to bring up uh, again. It's it's not actually officially open at time of uh, time of recording. God, new venues. What yeah, like? really new, really hot off the press. Um, it's called the Flower Pot, and it is in it's sort of between. Hox and Haggerston, but it's it's on the it's on the canal, okay, cool. um, which is oh, really amazing. I mean, for me personally, Regent's Canal around that sort of area is one of one of my favourite mm. parts of London. I, I did have a uh, have a chat with the with the venue manager actually one one of the uh, one of the partners there who's who's started this venue up called Will Smith. You know, he's absolutely over the moon to sort of be opening it in the next few days and and um, kind of get things rolling. And it it really does just look absolutely incredible. It's a, it's a really light, um, open, bright space. What they're trying to do with it is they're trying to make it into kind of like an indoor garden all year round. So when I I was speaking to him, he was talking about the fact that he was waiting on a delivery for for 65 hanging flowers to go across. Yeah, yeah, to go across the the beam in the roof. Mm. Um, They're going to have growing walls as well. So it's a real plants like uh, actually up all the walls and grass up all the walls. It just it just looks really amazing. One of of the best things about it, uh, in my my opinion, is that it's a a complete dry hire. But they let you basically provide you with everything. So I'll give you all the furniture in the in the flat higher higher fee, all the crockery, everything like that. So rather than like a, a standard conference venue where you have to use their caterer or you have to use someone on their list yeah, and yeah. you know you might pay seven pounds for a coffee, you could you could literally just bring in whatever you want. You can do a delivery, um, you could do a delivery to the office and they'll still provide you with cutlery and stuff like that. So it's just really the opportunities there are, are really amazing. You can kind of just um, just do whatever you want there. I've actually already got a couple of bookings through Higher Space, which is oh, really, really amazing work. Um, it's not even open yet. It's not even open yet. And he's, you know, he's already uh, 
already got a couple of couple of deals through, which is fantastic. So one of them, uh, a two day conference, which is great. As I mentioned before, it's a great conference venue, um, and the other one, a wedding. So it's you know it's a great place to get hitched. Um, it's in Haggerston, so it's um, it's in East London. So for people who want to get away from you know the wild wild west, London, um, it's a it's a cool it's a cool venue to go to. And you know if you've got any inquiries for them, get those bad boys over to us, and we'll uh, hopefully uh, yeah hopefully bring them bring them even more business. Amazing. It does look like a really cool space as well. It's somewhere that a very high space and uh, yeah, somewhere that I hope we do a lot, do a lot more work with and looking forward to seeing what we can do with the space. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, in terms of the space itself, more of a sort of uh, details. It's, it fits about 100 theatre. Um, so, so great for conferences and away mm. days, but also got um, space for 150 standing at the moment. I believe they've got a license until about 11 p.m. But, uh, you know, perfect, perfect for away days where they're not ending too late, more corporate parties and stuff like that. And, and further down the line, that, that license could actually get could actually get extended. Um, they're also offering a DDR package at the moment for £40 a person. So if you don't fancy sort of sourcing your own catering or, or bringing it in yourself and you can do it through them and they'll, they'll provide you a DDR rate for £40 head, which is, as I'm sure you'll agree, really, really competitive. Very good. Well, um, they're the two venues we had for you this week. So uh, that's thank you from me, Nathan. Thank you from me, Jake. And uh, we hope to speak to you guys in the next few weeks. See you next week. Yep, bye. It's over to Felicity now, the head of Event Lab, and Ben, part of the Event Lab team and an account manager at Highspace, as they join Kevin Jackson to talk about his new book, No Such Thing as Sales. Hello, I'm Felicity. I'm head of Event Lab. And I'm Benjamin. I'm part of the account specialist team at Hirespace. And tonight we're joined by Kevin Jackson. Hi, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, really good, thank you. Um, so, Kevin, for for people who don't know, who are you? What do you do? There are some there are some people is left there out there left? who doesn't who don't know me. Uh, I guess today's terminology, I'm an eventrepreneur. Ooh, that's good, isn't it? That's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I've got, um, I created with my, one of my business partners, three events. So, uh, the Muslim lifestyle show, which is at Olympia, the Halal food festival, which is at tobacco dock and the, um, Eid festival, which is at Westfield. We had about 150,000 people at those three events. Um, I've got a publishing business in, uh, in Europe, which produces my magazine called live communication. And then I have a consultancy business that does everything else. So the experience is the marketing, does my speaking, my publishing, and my uh, consultancy. Awesome. And probably most importantly now, there's a, a new book mm. on the horizon now. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as sales. There is no such thing as sales. No You're such quite thing right, sales. Ben. I've, <laughs> I've been working on this a, a little while now. So tell us a bit about the book. When, when can we expect to see that? Uh, the book's out now. Uh, it, get, it gets published by... The publishers does it on subscription and then it will come out later in the year in, on sort of general release. So it's in advance publicity now, which is why I can claim best-selling status. It's, there is no such thing as sales was based on something I've been saying for, I don't know, eight or nine years. And I had a few minutes to think about it. I thought I should try and justify that because I had been saying that for a long time. Based on a piece of research I'd found that said your behavior is controlled by your amygdala, the oldest part of your brain, sometimes called the prehistoric brain or the reptile brain, which doesn't have language or logic. It only has emotions. 
And it was the part of the brain that said, there's something behind that bush, you should run or you should eat it. Um, and that is controlling more of our behaviour than we ever thought. The thing about sales is it's a behavioural communication. And if you don't feel warmly towards someone, you're not going to buy. It's an emotional connection. And yes, in a business-to-business -business sense, you have to underpin with logic. But if you don't know someone, you don't trust someone, you haven't got a relationship with someone, they're never going to buy from you. You're never going to sell to them. It's like hypnotism. You can't hypnotise someone who doesn't want to be hypnotised. You can't sell to someone who doesn't want to be sold to. But what you can do is build a relationship. So what would you say is um, the most important way to, to start off that process? Say, say I walk into a room to meet with you mm. and maybe the first thing you pick up would be along the lines of body language, the yep. way I look and the appearance that I'm presenting. Yep. What would you say is sort of the most important thing of, of being a good salesperson in that respect from the first impression to how you would then start the conversation? So there's two things on that. One, uh, you, there's a piece of mythology out there that says you make up your mind on someone in one third of a second, whether you like them or not. Well, that's your amygdala. It's nothing to do with anything else. It's do I like, do I trust, do I feel right with this person? It's a gut reaction. And when you say to yourself, I've got gut feeling or this feels like they're right, that's the bit that's talking to you. In a B2B context, it takes between five and 12 encounters to make a sale. That's all about relationship. So what you can't do when you first meet someone is do anything other than make, start making a relationship in the same way as you would when you're dating. What you have to do in, when you're dating as a single guy, the, these are the tricks, <laughs> you have to ask questions. You know, if you go on a date with someone and all they do is talk about themselves, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah. If you go on a date with someone and you let them talk about themselves, they're going to have a good time. So it's about getting to know them and building a relationship based on knowledge. You've got to know your stuff. You've got to know your product. You've, you've got to know all the... Th you've got to have, be able to have conversations. And if you can do that, you will build a relationship and you will make a sale. Okay, so where would you say marketing teams can sort of fit into that to enhance the, the sales process? Obviously, been a few changes this year that some people might have heard about. Yeah. Um, how, how do you think marketing teams can look to, to add value to that initial relationship so that when the salesperson comes in, they're not just coming in alone, they're coming in backed by a brand that is strong, respected, and has already started that conversation for them? You can have a relationship with the brand because when you walk in to buy a fizzy drink, you already know the brand. The brand has a personality. It, ha it stands for certain things which match with you. You have a relationship with it. So... The thing about marketing is, especially in a B2B context, it should do nothing but drive you to sales. The brand needs to represent itself. It needs to have emotions. It needs to have things it believes in. It needs to have a point of view. And if you've got that you as a customer, you can start building a relationship with it. But even then, you can't build a relationship with someone you've never met. And that's why the face-to-face -face industry, which I shout from the rooftops on a daily basis, is the thing that's driving business. You can have a relationship with a pen pal, but it's not like being in the room with someone. It's not like hearing them speak. It's not like seeing their reaction to ideas. Yes, you, can, you can't really build a relationship through email. You need to get face-to-face -face and you need to have a proper relationship. And even if in the first instance, as you were saying, Ben, you just go and hear them speak, you then have a better picture of that person, that brand, than you ever did before you met them. 
So one of my probably sort of broadcasting heroes, uh, the great Sir Terry Wogan, mm. he had a broadcasting style where every single person that was listening to his show felt like they were talking to just him. Yep. And they were just sat in their living room having a cup of tea, having a chat with old Ted. How do you think brands can look to do a similar thing through their communications to, to reach out to people as if they are talking exclusively to them and building that relationship on a one-to-one basis? That's a great question. I used to say I want to be Terry Wogan. Not because I wanted to be a chat show host, but because I wanted to be the person who had a relationship and was just paid for being them. You know, just turning up and being you. And the thing about Terry Wogan is he was authentic. He never really changed. No. From the minute he started talking through his radio show and then through his TV chat show, he was always him. And he represented himself authentically and honestly. And he stood for certain things. Now, that is what brands need to do. They need to represent themselves authentically, honestly, and consistently, and emotionally. You, as you said, you, you felt like you were talking to one, he was talking to you. I was lucky enough, and I can't even remember how long ago this was, but there was an event, a Ford event, and I think it was Henry Ford's great-great-great-grandson or something. And he said at that meeting, he said at that conference, in the future, this was late 80s, in the future, every brand will have a database of one. And everyone thought, what is he talking about? Because we always had millions on our data. We wanted hundreds of thousands. We wanted millions. What he was saying was, each person needs to be treated as an individual. You need to find a way of talking to that person individually because they are the most important person in their world and they are the most important person in your world. So find a way of talking to them individually. And I guess just joining up to what we do for a living, experiences are wholly individual. If you're at the O2 recently with um, Lady Gaga, there's 20,000 people in the audience and everyone thinks she's singing directly to them because that's what live experience does. Because it's filtered through your own experience it's filtered through your own live life experience and you make a connection with that artist that's what great brand experience does that's what great events do they talk directly to you because you are filtering it live through your own lived experience that's why it connects that's why it's emotional and that's why they work it's the fastest growing marketing discipline really give or take a bit of social (laughs) because it's so effective And brands are investing in it because it is so effective. It is so emotional. And now we're getting into that whole emotional connection thing because that's what makes your behavioural change. Playing devil's advocate for a moment, when we look at the um, brands or the the organisations that maybe raise alarm bells when it comes to how cost-effective this is, if they think this is going to take a lot of resources to take it back to that kind of relationship level that kind of can instil better relationships with clients mm. what would you say to them and are there things that I'd say you're not doing it properly <laughs> are there things that will help with that in the future you know is technology is machine learning going to help that personalization process is it all about the person or okay. you know do we have to wait and see I, I won't talk about a specific example but I'll give you a for instance I was involved in an event that had a community of 10,000 at the event through social media and social sharing, it got to an audience of 10 million. 
because the event was so amazing that everyone in the room wanted to pass it on. Not only pass it on, but endorse it and pass it on. Okay, the cost of the event for 10,000 people could be seen as quite expensive. But when you divide it by 10 million, you've got cost per thousand advertising costs. You've got pennies. Now, what you have to do in all events, all experiences, and let's not talk about events because events are just a date in the diary. Experiences are a campaign. What you have to do with all created experiences is work out who your core audience is, who you want to target, what that universe could look like, and then make sure that you get to the right numbers through social sharing. Mm. That makes everything cost-effective. Mm. If you go to the O2 and watch Lady Gaga, there's 20,000 people in the audience. I'm going to guess 15,000 are watching through their phone because it's not enough just to be there. You want to be there, but you want everyone else to know that you were there. And the the data that I've got says that um, the people who are at an event, they share it with uh, roughly 14, it's 14 the bit, 14 other people. And the 14 other people who weren't at the event, they share it with five other people. So even if you're not at the event, you're even if you're 20,000, you're sharing with 14 or sharing with five, that gets to a big number. Now, if you've got messaging in there, if you're creating the right environment, you're creating the right experience that people have something to say because we all want to share experiences. That's the currency that, we live, that we're using at the moment. The experience economy is all about using the currency of experience. That becomes very powerful. It becomes very powerful for a brand and it very, becomes very powerful connecting brands to their customers. And that's the important thing. It's that emotional connection with your customer who then is with you through thick and thin. Maybe the price goes up, maybe the product, mm. something. But those emotional connections are really hard to break. And if you do that with your stakeholder, shareholder group, you see the stock price going up, but people hold on to the shares because they believe and are connected to the emotion of the, the brand. So create, create the valuable connection and takes a lot of the stress out of the uh, following work. No, but that's the whole point. That all, I mean, there have been so many books. Don't create a brand, create a cult or whatever that was. I can't mm. remember what that book was. And Love Marks. And all of those books are about the emotional connection of a customer and a brand. The emotional connection of a customer and a company. The emotional connection of a workforce and its uh, company. Those things are the things that are driving us forward because we all want to be proud of the, thing, of the choices we're making. We want to say we work for a great company. We want to say we work for a great boss. We want to say that we're using this product because it's amazing. And all of those things come by creating experiences where people understand what you're doing, understanding that you're investing in them, understand that you're showing them something that no one else is getting. Hmm. And that's the emotional connection. Once you do that, so in summary, the key, the key. Go on, please summarise, Ben. The key point here is get out, meet people, and start building those relationships. And that's really the core place that you should be starting to to get out and improve those relationships, and then ultimately improve the word that doesn't exist, sales. (laughs) It exists, but you can't. It's 
you know, those sales processes come from 1930s, 1940s America when they were sending out thousands of people to sell Coca-Cola, Electrolux, Chrysler, Ford. They were sending people into the street with folders of this is how you sell. Those processes that we all know, those acronyms, those initialized sales processes are from then. We've all moved on. Always be closing. It's written on my old office wall. Yeah, but that's rubbish, <laughs> isn't it? In the book, it's always be opening. Always be opening relationships. Always be opening conversations. Always be open to helping someone. Because there is no... Those big things are based on what was called the expanding universe theory. That you could run faster than your problems. That you could find another customer. You know, that horrible, there's one born every minute mm. thing. Where salespeople can't be bothered to build a relationship because they go on and find someone else. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. Because no one ever goes away anymore. There is no expanding universe. We are here. We're connected on social. We're connected in many, many ways. And no one can go away or deny what, what has happened. So you have to be very clear about what you're doing and your intentions in building relationships. And yes, it starts with networking. Yes, it starts with going out there. And sorry, the myth of networking is that you can meet someone at a, at a thing. You, you're witty and charming. You make a great relationship and you walk away with the business. Well, that's not how that works either. All of those myths of shortcuts doesn't work. There are no shortcuts. Go to a networking thing, build a relationship. It might take three or four years for that relationship to turn into anything. Make sure you represent yourself honestly, have some fun, know some stuff, be knowledgeable, and then keep following up. Can take years and years and years. It doesn't happen overnight. That's the myth of networking. But network, 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 and then start building. So be patient. Keep adding value. Add value and, at every every exchange. And keep keep meeting people. Yep. And the next great place to be meeting people is Event Lab Event in October. Lab. In October. October at the Barbican. At the Barbican. Yep fantastic conservatory oh, it's a, amazing it's a tropical paradise i'm looking forward to that we'll be um we'll be hanging out in the chill zone i'm sure yeah. just among the trees and uh yeah just having a having a bit of a breather good place to go and meet people phones are banned so i'm looking forward to that because uh, felicity manages to curate a great list of speakers and i'm uh, i'm looking forward to meeting them we're excited to have uh, kevin hosting our conference date once again so. again yeah I'd well, you know when you get asked that, you'd say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you kind of done a bad job. It's a relationship <laughs> thing, isn't it? There you there go. You go. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. I enjoyed it. It was great. Thanks, guys. And uh, we'll see you again very soon. See you at the Barbican. And then we get a jingle, 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 and then that's it. Now, as Ben perfectly reminded us, we are only a few weeks away from Event Lab on October the 23rd and 24th at the Barbican. You can find links to register for tickets to the event in the show notes below, along with everything mentioned in the episode. Or you can go to eventlab.online for more information. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. Finally, you can follow all that we do on Twitter and Instagram using the handle eventlab underscore online. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>